One of the things I teach students in RI is Christ means king. I do this, well, I do it because Christ is not an English word, is it? And so it does need to be defined. But more than that, some students think Christ is a meaningless syllable. It's a meaningless syllable. Adults yell at them when they are angry. And then to confuse them, here they are in RI and the instructor is saying Christ all the time, but he's not angry. It needs some explanation. It needs to be explained because some students think Christ is Jesus' surname, that his parents were Mr. and Mrs. Christ. This is all fair enough conclusions to come to. And so to clear things up, very simply I say to them, no, Christ means king. And it works because it gets into your head because both of those words start with a k sound. And I reckon I've probably said the same things here at church, that Christ means king. It's a true enough definition, uh, but it's not the whole story. Christ is a Greek word. It's a word that's used to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ Messiah mean exactly the same thing. Messiah means anointed. It's a verb before it's a noun. Anointing is an action done to holy things and holy people, generally pouring or smearing olive oil on the person or thing. In the Old Testament, I mentioned this last week as we looked at Zechariah 4. Remember Zechariah 4, the vision of the, the lamp and the, the olive trees? In the Old Testament, people were anointed to mark them out for special service to God. Prophets, priests, kings, all of them were anointed. They were all messiahed. They were all Christed. So what does it really mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ? What are we saying about him? And what makes it good news for us? Well, a strange and surprising ceremony was performed about 500 years before Jesus. It came about because God told Zechariah to do it. And this ceremony shines a light on what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. So we're continuing in Zechariah and today we're at a hinge point of the book. Uh, So far in the journey, so far in the book, we've taken a journey with Zechariah. He's seen visions of God's judgment and also God's forgiveness and the hope he gives. And the vision centered around Two people, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. Now, these men featured in the vision, but they weren't really there. It was a vision, but the event we're looking at today, they involve the the real high priest, Joshua. So previously, God has spoken to Zechariah in a vision, and now he speaks with words. God tells Zechariah to act out a drama, to perform a symbolic ceremony. Zechariah is to go and meet some of the recently returned exiles. These returnees have brought silver and gold with them, and he's to have these precious metals made into a crown. So let's have a read from verse 9, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. Zechariah 6, 9, the word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles Heldiah, Tobajah and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown. 
And so my guess, we're not told, my guess is this silver and gold is some of the building material uh, that the emperor Darius supplied for rebuilding the temple. So the three men take make a silver and gold crown. And from what we heard last week, particularly Zechariah 4, we expect the very next thing to be the crowning of Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is not only the governor, but he's a descendant from King David. He has the right to be king. But Zerubbabel is completely absent at this ceremony. The crown's not for the governor, but for the priest. Have a look at how verse 11 finishes. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josadak. Now, this is shocking. And it's not a mistake. If you look down at verse 13, it says a priest on his throne. This is confusing. Priests don't get crowned. Priests don't sit on thrones. We read in chapter 3, priests have turbans, not crowns. This ceremony is unheard of in Israel. Now, priests and kings are both anointed people, but they're separate roles. In fact, one of the things that led to King Saul's downfall is he performed a sacrifice. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 13, so that's 1 Samuel 13. God specifically commands Saul to wait for the priest to come before offering a sacrifice. But Saul gets anxious, he gets impatient, and this seals the end of his kingship. Kings can't be priests. Kings don't offer sacrifices. A priest can't be a king. And one of the reasons is because of family. Uh, this is something that we, you would have picked up as Mitch started our service in Hebrews 7. Kings come from the tribe of Judah. And they don't just come from that tribe, but from the family of David. God's king must descend from King David. But priests come from the tribe of Levi. Those who offer sacrifices at the temple descend from Aaron, Aaron who is Moses' little brother. It's simple genetics. You can't descend from both Levi and Judah. You can't be both in the family of David and the family of Aaron. So what on earth is going on in Zechariah's ceremony? Well, first of all, this is clearly a symbolic ceremony. Zechariah isn't leading a coup. Joshua isn't trying to usurp Zerubbabel's position as governor or king. It's a symbolic ceremony. We see this in verse 14. Verse 14, the crown will be given to Heldiah, Tabajah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Joshua doesn't keep the crown. The crown is eventually put in the newly built temple. The crown serves as a memorial. It's a sign, a reminder of this strange ceremony when a priest was crowned. Okay, so it's a sign, a symbolic ceremony. What's it pointing to? What's it a memorial of? Well, verse 12 mentions a man named the branch, which is a clue we need to make sense of this ceremony. So have a listen to verse 12. Tell him, that's tell Joshua, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. 
And he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. Now, okay, the branch. It's some sort of code name. I don't think anyone gets called Mr. Stick, though maybe they should. We've heard this name previously in Zechariah in chapter 3. And this person named the branch comes from earlier prophets. Zechariah, he is speaking as the people returned from exile. But about 70 years earlier, God spoke through Jeremiah who talked about the branch. I reckon uh, Jeremiah 33 gives a clue, a hint of what Zechariah is getting at. In Jeremiah 33, God describes a stump, a cut down tree. The, the stump symbolizes David's royal line. The great tree of David's royal line cut to the ground. But Jeremiah 33, a sprout, a branch, there's hope. Have, have a listen, Jeremiah 33. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Do you get what Jeremiah is saying? Even though David's line looks finished, it's dead, it's a stump, there's going to be a new shoot, a branch, and the branch, this promised descendant of David, will be a forever king. And then Jeremiah goes on to say something very interesting for us today. After talking about the branch, the future forever king, he then goes on to talk about a future revived eternal priesthood. Jeremiah says, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to present sacrifices. Jeremiah 33, God says there's something about the branch. A forever king goes together with a forever priest. They go together, though in Jeremiah it sounds like two different people, which makes sense because that's how it's always been in Israel. But Zechariah 6.12, here is a man whose name is the branch. Here in this room with a priest wearing a crown, this is who the branch is going to be. But how? And who? Well, I want you to turn now with me to the start of the book of Hebrews. Keep a, a bookmark Grab one of those equip bookmarks, put it in your Bible at Zechariah 6, turn in your Bible to Hebrews 1. If you've got one of the church Bibles, uh, you're on page 838, Hebrews 1. That Jesus is the priest and that Jesus is king, that's a truth that we find throughout the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews is all about digging into this truth. Uh, the big message of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's the fulfillment, he's the yes to all of the promises of the Old Testament. The point of Hebrews is don't give up on Jesus. Don't go back to the good old days of sacrifices and ceremonies. Stick with Jesus. A big focus of Hebrews is how Jesus is the true final sacrifice, the heavenly and eternal high priest. 
And right at the beginning, and I, I had never seen this until this week, right at the beginning, we see Jesus described as the prophet, priest, king. In Hebrews 1, we see all three anointed officers, prophet, priest, king, are united in the one Christ, the one Messiah, the one anointed one. So have you got Hebrews in front of you? Let's read Hebrews 1 verse 1. Hebrews 1 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So this is Jesus the prophet. God's full and final word is Jesus. But we're not going to dwell on this fact because Zechariah 6 doesn't pick up the office of prophets, of, of prophet, office of prophet. Uh, verse 2 continues that Jesus is king, verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, sustaining and ruling the universe, we normally think of this as Jesus' divinity. But in Hebrews 1, it's about Jesus' divine, kingly rule. Jesus rules over all creation. He is the king, not just of a a block of land and a, a nation on earth, but of the universe, sustaining it by his powerful word. So we've seen Jesus is prophet, Jesus is king. And now verse 3, Jesus is priest. Hebrews 1, 3. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of in heaven. Jesus is priest. He doesn't offer sacrifices at an altar. No, he gives his own life as a sacrifice on a cross. And through this sacrifice, he purifies his people from sin. So Jesus is prophet, priest, king, but remember the dilemma. Jesus is king. He is descended from King David. That's the point of Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Jesus' family line goes all the way back to David. There's not a doubt about that. And that's great for someone who wants to be a king. But it's a problem for serving as a priest. Because Jesus wasn't a Levite. He didn't come from Aaron's family line. So how can he be priest? Well, in Hebrews, it goes back deeper. It goes, picks up a thread from earlier in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, I think. I mean, Old Testament goes earlier than the time of Moses and Aaron. In Genesis 14, we meet an international man of mystery. His name is Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14, he's serving God as priest and he's also king of Salem, which later gets renamed Jerusalem. Hebrews explores this ancient precedent to solve the dilemma. Jesus is the true priest, not from the tribe or order of Levi, but Melchizedek. Now we could read from Hebrews 7, but we're going to read from Hebrews 5, which also raises this idea. Uh, So Hebrews 5, it's up on the screen. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That final quote there is from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, all of this is quite interesting. I find it interesting to kind of dig into the Bible and it's great to solve riddles. 
but we're not here to solve riddles today. Why does this matter? Like, why on earth does it matter that Jesus is priest and king? What's the impact for us? What difference does it make? Because Jesus is priest and king in, in the one man, the one anointed man, the one Christ, our greatest needs before God are answered. Have a listen to this, this beautiful summary of what it means for Jesus to be our priest, prophet, priest and king. As prophet, Jesus meets the problem of our ignorance, supplying us with knowledge. As priest, he meets the problem of our guilt, supplying us with righteousness. As king, he meets the problem of our weakness and dependence, supplying us with power and protection. Jesus as priest means our guilt is removed. Believers are now righteous, pure before God. Jesus as king means he is powerful where we are weak. He rules creation for his glory and the good of the church. But I want to go just one step deeper because often when we reflect on Jesus being prophet, priest and king, we consider them separately, which is fair enough because they are separate things. But Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 pulls them together. Why is it important that there is one Christ? Why not three Christs? Well, we're just thinking about the, the priest-king because that's the symbolic ceremony of Zechariah 6. The one Christ, the one branch is the priest-king. What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is that the one who is our Lord and judge, because part of being king means that Jesus is judge, the good news is that Jesus is our priest king. It means that the one who judges humanity, the judge is also the one who made atonement for sin. And this gives shape to Jesus' kingly rule. Our king knows our weaknesses. He is all-powerful and is the one who offers himself in weakness on the cross. And it means that we don't know Jesus if we only bow down to him as Lord, but we don't also embrace and love him as our priest. He is the priest king. As Zechariah 6.13 says, there is harmony between the two. The rule of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ are not separate, but united and harmonious in the one Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second implication for Jesus being our priest king. And we've got to go back now to Zechariah 6 to see it. So you've got your bookmark, flick back Zechariah 6. Because after Zechariah performs the symbolic ceremony, crowning the priest, he speaks. He gives God's message, God's interpretation of the symbolic action. And God says, as we've already heard, the symbolic ceremony, it's not about Joshua, it's about the branch. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. And he goes on to say, verse 12, the branch will build a temple. Have a listen, Zechariah 6, 12. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man, man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne And he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. The branch, the branch is going to be a temple builder. And look at the end of the chapter. 
The branch is going to source laborers, source builders from the temple, not only from the people of Israel, but from the whole world. Verse 15, those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Now this promise again raises a dilemma in the context of Zechariah chapter 4. Because isn't Zerubbabel going to build the temple? Won't his hands place the capstone, the final stone of the temple? But the branch isn't Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel has no part in this prophetic ceremony. And verse 12 says that the branch is the priest king. And Zerubbabel is no priest, he's only governor. What is this temple? Uh, What on earth is God saying? Is Zechariah contradicting himself within two chapters? Well, this promise of the branch building a temple, uh, this goes back to why it's so good that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the anointed priest and anointed king harmoniously united in one person. Priests need a temple. They need a building with an altar, a place to offer sacrifices to God. Kings need kingdoms. And a kingdom isn't about castles or even land with a border. You're not a king unless you've got people. You're not a king unless you've got subjects to rule. And so this reality that priests need temples but kings need kingdoms opens our eyes to an incredible truth. Jesus has a temple. But it's not a temple made of bricks and rocks. Tourists can't visit this temple and take photos of it. No, because Jesus is our priest king, his people are his temple. His kingdom are the stones that build the temple. They are harmoniously united in the two. The two are harmoniously united in one. His temple, the temple which is made of people, is the place where God dwells. And this is taught to us in the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2 calls, the church calls you and me as we gather in the name of Jesus, we are the living stones of Christ's church. So have a listen, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, that's the branch, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a spiritual priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So think about Zechariah 6, the promise, the branch is going to build a temple. This spiritual house, this these living stones, we are the temple the branch builds. He calls people from every nation, Not to pick up hammer and trowel, to pile up stones in Jerusalem. No, the people themselves that Jesus saves are the temple. And this is what gets me confused by Christians and churches who think God's plan for the future involves rebuilding a stone temple in Jerusalem. That's not on Jesus' agenda. God is calling people, not bricks. He's calling people from all around the world to be his temple. And as his temple, as living stones, purified by the self-sacrifice of Jesus, that's what makes us holy, so we are acceptable as temple-building blocks. As God's temple, we've got a job to do. We're called to tell the world how good God is. 
We continue a few sentences later in 1 Peter, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Jesus is the Christ, which means Christ means king, yes, but there's more to it than that. Jesus is our priest king, which means he is our Lord and he pours out mercy on us. We don't deserve our king's forgiveness, but as our priest, he makes forgiveness possible himself. And so now we are his living stones, the stones that make up his new temple, which means Jesus is present with us and we declare his praises. We tell the world how good it is to receive the mercy of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you because he is our priest. He knows our weaknesses and makes a way for forgiveness. We praise you because he is our King, that he is strong when we are weak, that he lovingly rules creation for his glory and the good of his church. And we praise you that Jesus is our priest King, that our Lord and Judge is also the one who sacrificed himself for sin. Amen.